0: You're listening to the Unsilod podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsilod is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with uh, Charles Calmeris, who is a professor of uh, finance at Columbia Business School. And also, most recently, the chief economist at the Comptroller of the Currency and the author, co author of this book, Fragile by Design The Political Origins of Banking Crises and Scarce Credit. Welcome, Charles. Good to see you, Greg. So, you know, you teach courses in financial history. You've been working in financial history for, for a long time. And, you know, this is an unusual, it's kind of an interesting discipline because, you know, in economics and in finance, we're always kind of trying to tease out these timeless rules of how markets work. You know, the typical economist or financial theorist is trying to derive, you know, rules and, and principles and, and laws. And yet when we, we look at finance in practice, you know, there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of particularity. And so you emphasize the importance of narrative. You emphasize the importance of individual kind of case analysis. You emphasize the importance of, of historical exploration. So, you know, to what extent does doing this require, I mean, if you get too particular and you get too deep into the details, then doesn't that kind of take you far afield from the kind of practice of economics, which is really about deriving general laws and and general principles. You're kind of critical in the book of folks who try to, you know, abstract from things like politics and, and history and do something which they think of as kind of pure economics. What's the relationship between these kind of statistical and theoretical and abstract exercises and the kind of nitty gritty of what we see on the ground?
1: Great question. I mean, I see myself as a mainstream economist. I, I use the tools of economics, both theoretical tools and empirical tools all the time. I publish in referee journals, what I think you would call fairly mainstream, maybe even occasionally cutting edge, methodological papers in economics. So I am not a disgruntled Anti economist by any means. It just depends on what question you're asking. If you're asking the question, how do I forecast oil prices? I think that's a tool. I can answer that with toolkits where I don't really need to go very far outside of economics ever. But if you're trying to answer the question, why is it that some countries have chosen to have such a little amount of bank credit and have also chosen to organize themselves in a way that collapses fairly frequently, their banking system. That is not a question that you're going to be able to get at with economics. And the reason is, notice that that from the very beginning of the question, what we know is that you're doing something that from the standpoint of economic efficiency, economic performance is not wise. And so if you try to answer the question, we have a huge amount of economics literature that's been very useful for telling us one thing. Having a good banking system is a good thing. It spurs development. Designing a banking system that doesn't fall apart and that creates a lot of credit is a good thing. The other thing the economics literature can tell us is that we know how to do it. In fact, we've known how to do it since about 1750 in Scotland. So so the economics literature is very good at telling us sort of, how a good banking system seems to be constructed, telling us that we can construct this and construct it and telling us it's really useful to do so. Good meaning both lots of credit and not collapsing constantly. It also helps us understand some of the reasons mechanically why banking systems can't be big. For example, if I tell banks that they have to hold 100% of their deposits on reserve at the central bank, they can't do any lending, right? That's just a pretty clear. So economic principles and, and empirical analysis can also help us see the mechanical reasons why banks are often small. They can also help us see if I force you to make bad loans or if I don't set up creditors' rights. So we have a lot of economics, and I'd call pure economics literature. It's telling us all those things. Banks are good things to have. They promote development. They promote inclusion, by the way, too. We know how to construct them. We know the things, a long list of things that undermine both the depth of the banking system and that create its fragility. And we see, here's now the puzzle. We see governments over the past four plus centuries over and over again, purposely choosing to have scarce credit and unstable banking systems. Economics can't answer the question of why that is, because it, it doesn't make any sense from an economic standpoint. And so the beginning of an answer to that question comes from saying, recognizing something else too, which is no government, even the worst dictator, is so evil that he actually doesn't want to, all things equal, have more growth, have more banking, right? It's not that governments choose to have bad banking systems because they're against growth per se. That would be more tax revenue for them, right? They'd like more growth it's that they must want some other things that turn out to be inconsistent with having a great banking system. And so then you say, well, how do I figure that out? How do I make that case and understand what those drivers are? The best way to do it is to explore the government decisions that have happened and to try to tell a narrative that explains why would governments over and over again in most countries in the world for most of human history purposely decide that they wanted to have bad banking systems. And the amazing thing to me anyway, somewhat amazing is that when you do that, it's not even hard. And it's not even hard to be convincing that if you're talking about this history, you can very quickly and very easily, if you start at the beginning and go slow and take account of who the government is under what system and what the basic sort of environmental circumstances, you can kind of see why governments often choose not to have stable and large banking systems. And so I think that I just wanna emphasize, it's not an anti-economics, it's there's a point at which economics can't answer the question that's maybe the most important one it, it sets everything up. It tells us, hey, this is an important question because having a good and big and stable banking system sure would be helpful. And we know how to do it. Those are pretty helpful things from an economic standpoint, to tell me mechanically that it's important and that we know how to do it. But then explaining why governments choose not to, is just inherently not for economists with their discipline to be able to do. And, and it's right down the, the alley, of course, of political science. And economic and political history. So the, the two have to work together.
0: I mean, I think there's probably a naive view kind of outside of the discipline that thinks of kind of the, the realm of economics and and the realm of politics as being these you know, completely different and potentially even severable domains. And then I think when you have that framework, then you, you kind of think you know, the more the government's involved, you know, the worse things are, the better things are, and then you know, there's this dial that 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 has to do with more or less, you know, regulation. I, I don't think people in inside the discipline either one of those disciplines think that way. Purely for division of labor purposes, they they will often fix the one and then and then focus on variation in the other, uh, just purely for that makes for, sense.
1: That yeah. makes sense because. I mean, I just did it in my answer to your first question. I said, well, economics helped us understand this, this, and this. But then it sort of ran up against a dead end. In fact, economics created the dead end by saying, hey, wait a minute. Why would you ever choose not to? So I, I just feel like the other thing that was lucky for me is I started off my career in an economics department as an economic historian, by the way, so did Steve Haber, my co-author in the book. He gravitated initially to a history department at Stanford, then to a political science department at Stanford. I gravitated to a finance department at at a business school. We're both really from the same tribe, which is the tribe that thinks that you have to think about problems to answer those kinds of difficult problems. You have to think historically. But I would say that most of my favorite development economists were development political scientists, pretty much think exactly the same way that that we're thinking. There's a great book that I assigned, which is written by an economist, Lee Alston, and three political, I think one, maybe two, there are four co-authors, I think two may be economists, two are political scientists. And it's about the transition in Brazil in the 1990s, trying to explain how did you go from a constellation of bad institutions toward a kind of seemingly very positive and maybe even irreversible path toward a good set of institutions. And as you're building that kind of narrative, it it sounds a lot, looks a lot like the kind of thing Steve Haber and I are doing, because you actually have to try to put together a picture. Some of it is economics. For example, the fact that there was a hyperinflation in Brazil in the 70s and the 80s caused a lot of negative social reaction to the status quo. That opened the door to think, trying to find solutions in another way. But then it turns out that having somebody like Cardoso was quite important. So sometimes the particulars of history and the way he was able to exert leadership in articulating a vision that people really already shared, but also convincing them that there was a way to go from the bad equilibrium to the good equilibrium, that they could actually coordinate their action. And also articulating for them that what they wanted was a long-term focus on social inclusion and sustainable fiscal policy rather than myopic election cycle-driven giveaway programs, which all the people already knew were phony stuff that politicians do. So when a politician so what I just said is a great example, how you come to believe that narrative is so powerful, because it isn't mechanical that because you have hyperinflation, you're going to get political reform. It's a process that sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't. Argentina had the same experience of high inflation, followed by uh, reform attempts in the early 1990s. It didn't last. Trying to understand the kinds of particulars of what is the narrative that makes those two countries parallel, but to a point and then different is you know, we all want to know answers to questions like that because we care about development, which translates into we care about people. And you're just not going to get a good answer to that question focusing just on economic theories, which is why someone like Lee Alston, who incidentally runs at Indiana University, the Ostrom Workshop on Institutions. Again, that's, she was a Nobel laureate who won her Nobel Prize in economics all about thinking about how institutions are built. So it's not like we invented in our, Steve Aver and I didn't invent it anymore, than Lee Alston and his co-authors on Brazil invented this. I think you could also say, if you go back and look at what people like Adam Smith were writing in The Wealth of Nations, and don't forget his second most famous book is The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is all about, those two books are actually quite complementary. Because it's about how institutions, including social constructs and shared sort of values, are mutually feeding on free markets, that free markets create good values and also depend on them. And so I think if you think about somebody from the very beginning like Adam Smith, this is already baked in. And in fact, there's only one sentence, as far as I have been able to find in the entire Wealth of Nations, about China and explaining. Why is it that China was so poor at the time he was writing The Wealth of Nations on a per capita income basis? And he basically says that China has the wealth that it's basically, its institutions are capable of delivering. He doesn't explain further. So I don't think you would say that anything that we're talking about here, Greg, we've been a surprise to the great economists, even David Ricardo, who sometimes is viewed as the father of technical economics. Mm -hmm the Ricardian equivalence theorem, Ricardian theory of comparative advantage in trade, and I could go on and on. I think you would have to say that he was a much deeper thinker than just that. But if you look,
0: I mean, Adam Smith doesn't really mention finance all that much in, in his books. And, you know, I, I'm very interested in development and I've spoken to a lot of people about development and there's, there's I think most people in development would argue that finance plays kind of plays a huge role in development. And I think you could tell the story of a country's history purely. And I think both of us have taught courses where, you know, where we just, it's called, you know, courses in financial history, where we view pretty much everything through the lens of finance. And yet, as you point out in the book, the kind of industrial revolution, which is kind of that defining moment of human progress, at least in England, it seems like, you know, the kind of financial institutions that we, recommend for developing countries were not really in place, right? In terms of providing the private credit to entrepreneurs and so forth. Or at
1: least they were hobbled substantially Mm -hmm. because, you know, I only have one thing I call Calvary law of banking. There's just one of them. So it's easy to remember it. Calvary law of banking is this, until the sovereign that charters banks is reasonably confident of its own survival, banks will not be issuing credit to the private sector. And that of course is explaining what you just said about England. So from 1694 to 1825 in England and Wales, the only chartered financial institution was the Bank of England. Now there were other banks with partnership arrangements up to a small number of partners that were allowed under law and they did provide credit. So it's not that there was complete absence of credit, but compared to Scotland, which was under the same king, at the same time, on the same island, permitted to have a much different and much more open and much more financially deep banking system, England and Wales was quite backward. Scotland grew dramatically from the 1700 to 1750. And in a very diversified way, you could say the first real uh, sort of modern, meaning the last 400 years, example of clear finance-led growth maybe was Scotland from 1700 to 1750. And it was happening alongside a financial repression in England and Wales. And by the way, the people in England and Wales noticed. It wasn't like they didn't notice. And that's why once the wars with France were over in 1850, then things became even more pressed. And now, according to Calamiris's law, the, having subdued the French in 1850, despite them, the fact that the Bank of England was jealously trying to guard its monopoly power, the political winds went in a different direction, and you got the chartering of banks in England and Wales moving toward a much more open and free system for the private sector. So that's just a great example. It's those kinds of comparisons that are really powerful when you construct a narrative, because you can hold a lot constant. Same parliament, remember that the Scots had given up their parliament as part of their political deal with the Brits. Same parliament, same king, same island, a lot of things that were the same, two completely different chosen banking systems, chosen by the parliament and the king, the same parliament and the same king. So to try to argue that somehow political and historical analysis isn't necessary is really, I think, quite striking. That case is very striking. Similarly, the U.S.-Canadian comparison, people that share a lot of ancestry, in fact, a lot of the first Canadians migrated from the U.S. after the revolution. And you could say a lot of things about what the two countries have in common. What's strange is Canada still hasn't had a banking crisis throughout its history. The U.S. has had, depending on how you count, the 20-somethings. Uh, Hopefully, I think we're going to get to that. Um, I mean, it's just, these are the things where I think when economists are thinking mechanically about these questions, they, they have to kind of stop in their tracks. When you say, well, whatever theory you as an economist might have about what causes banks to be unstable, all the list of things you might be going down the list to see about. Did you realize that Canada is more of a primary commodity producing country with more volatile national income. And yet, despite that, greater volatility has managed to have a deeper and less fragile banking system throughout its history. We're talking about a 200-year-old experiment of persistent difference. So it's not uh, about whether you were under the king. We were both colonies of Britain. Uh, It's not just like Scotland and England. It isn't that comparison. So these kinds of, this is what history really does for you. You can make dynamic long-term comparisons that are very telling, like match sample construction yeah, that we do in empirical studies, that it has to be designed to be convincing. So you, you don't make a pairwise comparison between um, Nigeria and the United States because there's too much that's different, right? But you, so you have to pick your comparisons and, and say, well, why is this different? Oh, you know, we can see where the turning points are, you know, and there were even some points where the Canadians generally now, the Canadians were looking at the U.S. as you don't want to do what those people south of the border are doing in banking. They wrote textbooks kind of pointing to that. Oh, no, you know, they don't, they're really bad down there. But there was a time in the late 19th century where there was a movement in part of Canada to try to imitate the U.S. system. And it had political support from the same kinds of groups in Canada that had been driving the bus for that system in the U.S. So we watch, even in that comparison, we can watch those groups get defeated in Canada. And then we can say, well, gee, why is it that those groups trying to do the same thing in, the, in these two countries, in one country were successful and one country failed, same kinds of people We're talking about rural landowning farmers. Mm-hmm. So We can see that they were trying to do the same thing. We can see that one failed and one succeeded. And I would say what you learn kind of from the example is that the difference between the U.S. Constitution and the Canadian Constitution really made a difference. So we're now coming to, you know, you talked about economic history and political science, but there's going to be another area here. And one of my friends, Lee Alston's son, Eric, who's a professor at Boulder, is a law professor, although he's trained in economics, you know, fully. And he's doing all this sort of comparison of constitutions. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that comes out of this is a whole branch of legal studies, which is to try to see what are the things about constitutions that matter. I've run into people that think constitutions don't matter at all. And I've run into people who think they matter for everything. I come down somewhere in between, but they sometimes matter a lot for, for a few things.
0: Well, I mean, I think that the, the folks who think that a constitution is simply a bunch of words on a paper, I think that view can be dismissed. But I want to get back to the development issue, because you say that, say, you know, there can be no banks without government, but you also say that there can be no real kind of solid, strong governments without banks. But I mean, we've had governments without banks, right? I mean, they've all throughout the Middle Ages (laughs) had governments. I mean, we certainly have finance. What is it about banks that makes them different from, you know, just finance in general? I mean, people have been borrowing and lending since Probably caveman days, right? You know, I
1: want I want to be clear that when I first, let's distinguish between chartered and non-chartered banks, because of what? course the, Bardian, the yep. and the teaching, the existed during the uh, what you might call medieval renaissance period, but the first chartered banks—that is when the state decides to bestow privileges and respectability and a license to to do particular things that the state's permission requires on a particular institution. Mm-hmm. It's that chartering that is is what is most interesting, because I don't think it's very surprising to say that if there's an entity that charters another entity, that's likely that those two are going to have some kind of partnership. That if I get to decide what your charter looks like. You come to me and say, I want to be a chartered bank. You, the sovereign, have issued the license for me to do a particular set of things. And you're giving me some, maybe now initially, exclusive permission. Later, by the mid-1800s, not exclusive permission, more competitive. But if you're giving me exclusive permission, it won't surprise anyone. That's going to be a mutual deal. And we wanna think about everything in terms of political bargains that coalitions are formed to come up with deals that are mutually beneficial within the coalition. And so, you know, the first banks, including the Bank of England, but if you go back to looking at the banks that were formed in Italy in the 100 years before, or the Bank of Amsterdam, which was formed almost a century before the Bank of England, it was clear that those charters all came out of a partnership between the bank and the government Now the partnership varied a little bit so for example in venice and also in amsterdam it was more of the government was running a a merchant operation and so the bank was very much geared on creating efficient transactions for a merchant class that's what the bank of amsterdam was really geared on exchanging bills of exchange all over the world all the merchants of the world had accounts of the bank of amsterdam And similarly, the Venetian gyro system that was created was mainly to serve the merchants. But then in parallel and even earlier in Genoa and other Italian cities, the chartered institution was basically a debt management device for the sovereign. And the Bank of England was itself set up that way. The Bank of England was not set up initially. Its charge was not to be a lender to the private sector or even to the government. It was supposed to be a debt Swapping vehicle for sovereign debt. That's what it was set up to do to take all of the heterogeneous debts that the sovereign had incurred through, and basically consolidate them into one thing, which would be the long term debt, and then have that, the Bank of England's stock be paid, uh, have people who are subscribing to the Bank of England pay the stock in that government debt. So the Bank of England was designed and created by the Whig charterers of the Bank of England in Parliament as a debt management device for the crown coming out of its ambitions and its war with France, just as the San Giorgio in Genoa was established to manage the public finances. And the papal states had their bank that did that. So with, you, know, you just can't really come at the topic of chartered banking except that way. And then how does it connect to the non-chartered medieval banks? There was a learning going on there, and the learning was happening on both sides. The banks and the unchartered banks and the sovereigns learned during the Middle Ages that they needed a better partnership because sovereigns were defaulting on, on the banks because the sovereigns didn't have enough of a vested interest in the banks. And the banks were experiencing getting defaulted on because they didn't have enough of a vested connection to the sovereigns so coming out of the defaults and the imperfections of the bank sovereign deals that were made in the Middle Ages and the early Renaissance, you get the learning in the direction of building chartered institutions precisely so that they can improve on the sovereign debt default sort of management. And so that it, now in some places, as I said, that the main function of the bank was to facilitate the merchants' exchanges because that was the sovereign's goal. In some places, it was mainly to help fund the sovereign. But you can't really conceive of an extension. It, it wouldn't make sense to think that, well, banking is going to just exist the way it did before sovereigns and banks figured out that there was a benefit from creating these partnerships. And of course, sovereigns can make those partnerships valuable in part by outlawing not doing things through the partnership, by saying you can't create banknotes in England and Wales that aren't the Bank of England banknotes. So giving creating monopolies by excluding other parties creates rents that can be shared between the sovereign and the chartered banks. And once sovereigns and banks experience that, you're not going back, you know. So, you know, ev- every country in the world charters banks, all sovereigns charter banks. It's just something they do. Isn't
0: that kind of a remnant of kind of a old medieval view of the corporation that we still have? I mean, th- that view of the corporation was that this is an extension of the state, right, where you create it in order to serve some public interest, and then you circumscribe what it can and cannot do. But in almost every other domain, we've kind of moved from this kind of specific chartering to kind of more general purpose incorporation, right? So We did in banking,
1: too, where the partnership between the government and the banks changed, Mm -hmm. where it became more that the government gets its pound of flesh in the form of either a tax on the banks or, in addition, forcing the banks to hold government paper. We do that today. In much of the world, banks have to hold government paper as reserves, which is a form of taxation. Or it's not a coincidence that the national banking system of competing banks who could get a particularly the same kind of charter on a kind of free chartering business still had to hold 111% their note issues in government, U.S. government bonds. That was a civil war financing Mm -hmm. device. And so the partnership can express itself in different ways. I think your point, if I'm I, I'm going to agree with, is that initially this was thought of in terms of monopoly rents that are going to be shared. But it evolved in the direction of saying, no, we want competition. We want general incorporation laws. And by the way, that reform came out of the 1830s and 1840s experience. Various kinds of state deals that weren't part of general incorporation was not just in banking, but in roads and canals and other things where that corruption led to a general movement across the whole United States for state laws that not only require, uh, allowed general incorporation, but prohibited special incorporation because of the corruption that came from it. Mm-hmm. And so there was a different kind of philosophy by the time you get to the 1840s, how government's been a partner with banks. But the partnership continues and the tax continues. So, for example, the tax takes many forms. In the U.S., the Community Reinvestment Act is a big tax, and it's very much directed toward a particular set of objectives. And in case some of your viewers aren't familiar with that, I'll just tease their imagination.
0: Yeah, well, I was just going to say, like, you know, in... To this day, mergers are not governed. Mergers of banks are not governed by, say, Department of Justice, but by the, the Federal Reserve. Right. So it's, right. it's kind now,
1: of. They it's, could it's, be. The, the Department of Justice maintains the jurisdiction. They've just always chosen not to do it. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you a great story about politics. I'm sorry to, to interrupt your question, but you, you'll like this one. So back in 1990, Bank Boston and Fleet decided to merge. I think the, it was 1999. Yeah. And. I was hired by the attorneys general of Massachusetts and Connecticut to advise them on the merger. And they were working with the Justice Department to try to decide how to react to the merger. The mayor of Boston, the Chamber of Commerce of Boston, merchants throughout New England were against this merger. Mm -hmm. And they were against it for a very good reason because the middle market of lending, which lends to sort of local firms or regional firms, not the smallest, but sort of chunky, you know, good chunk of capital firms. You can't do that if you're a tiny bank and you can't do that if you're not a local bank. So you have to be a local non-tiny bank. At that time, there were only two of them, Fleet and Bank Boston. And the merger obviously would create monopoly rents that were specific to the middle market of lending. All the people in New England understood this. Now, the Fed didn't have that on their list. The Fed said it's all about the deposit market. Believe it or not, the Fed's criteria for approving of mergers, its economic criteria, have nothing to do with concentration in lending, which is crazy, but true. So there was so much objection to it that the Attorney General of Massachusetts and Connecticut got involved. The Attorney General of Massachusetts was actually a decent guy. The Attorney General of Connecticut, by the way, was not he's since become a senator. I'll let you all do your own research. I know that because I worked for both of them. So the attorney general of Massachusetts actually wanted to do something that would be in the public's interest. And he tried to convince the Justice Department to use its power. We created an empirical results that correctly predicted that the merger of the bank would lead to monopoly rent creation in the middle market. The Justice Department had the authority to oppose the merger. The Fed wasn't going to oppose it because the Fed had already been subject to approving it on the basis of what? Community Reinvestment Act giveaways from the bank, contractual agreements to give away to certain vested interests so that they wouldn't oppose the merger at the Federal Reserve Board hearings. By the way, that totaled from 1992 to 2007, two and a half trillion dollars of contractual agreements. In case you're Viewers aren't aware of what regulation can look like. But what was interesting was, initially, the Justice Department was all in favor of it. But then I was told by the Attorney General of Massachusetts, when the Justice Department withdrew from it, that Mr. Klein had gotten a phone call from Barney Frank telling him that if he opposed the merger of Fleet and Bank Boston, that the budget of the antitrust division of the Justice Department would be substantially hampered and Barney sat on both the judiciary and the banking committees. Now, I've just revealed something I don't think I've ever said before publicly, but I do want you all to understand, this is how policy is made in Washington. And Joel Klein withdrew the Justice Department's Antitrust Division from opposing that merger. And that merger went ahead because the Fed only cared about whether the pound of flesh had been given to the activist groups which is disgraceful but true and whether the deposit market was excessively concentrated it didn't care about what all the people in new england were worried about which was the creation of a monopoly in the middle market so that just gives you a little bit of a sense of how you know the role of the state continues there's still regulations used as a tax there's still these political bargains and deals there, they were very important in the U.S. leading up to the uh, subprime crisis, by the way. Two and a half trillion dollars is a pretty large sum of money. And, you know, it still was a competitive arrangement. It wasn't the Bank of England. It, was, it had moved into a different thing with, under general incorporation, under general regulation. But still the same principles of the partnership between the, the government and the chartered banks with prohibitions against others who aren't chartered. You can't do a deposit business in the U.S. if you're not chartered. So, so,
0: banks, so banks have always been, a, I mean, a tool of public policy in ways that other companies are, have not, in at least in, in large chunks of our history. And I'm thinking, I remember when Delaware became the state where everybody wanted to incorporate. Remember, it used to be New Jersey. And I, and I think if I got my history right, what happened in New Jersey is that all sorts of public policy goals were inserted into corporate law. And the legislature basically said, well, you know, if you want to be incorporated in New Jersey, well, then, you know, you have to have this policy towards labor and you have to have, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And and that just kind of caused everybody to go to Delaware, where the corporate law was just
1: about the relationship between the shareholders and the managers. It makes sense that, especially as a small state, that you'd realize that you can kind of arbitrage and get a lot of people to want to come to you if, if you aren't corrupt. You know, one thing that I think Naomi Lamoureux at Yale and John Wallace at Maryland in their work have have pointed out is, the way I would put it, this was a big surprise for me. Our founders did not anticipate this, the need for these legislative reforms that happened in the 1830s, the 1840s, to limit the corrupt use of special legislation to create general incorporation laws. When Alexander Hamilton was asked about whether there should be more than one bank charter within a state, his initial answer, now again, this is back in the 1790s, was no, you know, it's it's good to have only one. And of course, that kind of made sense at the early stage. When you're trying to build up a bank, monopoly rents can help capitalize the bank, make it more able to issue credit from the very beginning. In an environment where wealth is scarce, I think they were more supportive of those rights. But as time wears on, and you start seeing the advantages of competition, the disadvantages associated with corruption. Then this this other model becomes so much more attractive. So I, I think it's a really interesting aspect of our history. John Wallace and Naomi were recently, in their work, have been pointing to, and they they look at a lot of these early experiments, with particular incorporation laws. I think New Jersey and New York are two of the ones they focus along on. So I think you're right, and that's one of the things about federalism as it created. This competition among the states, so that it helped to spur sort of getting more quickly to efficient solutions. But I mean, other
0: occupations, so whether it's law or medicine, right? We we have restricted entry, and, and presumably the restricted entry is is there because we believe that those occupations have a you know public interest side or a fiduciary duty side as well That's as correct. sort of customer service. Yeah,
1: but right. I, uh, I can tell you, I don't believe that. I believe that. You know, the research that we have on usury laws leads us to think that, for example, usury laws aren't there to help people from being taken advantage of. They're there to force lenders to have to give more money to incumbent borrowers rather than to new entrants. Right. So that's what even on the borrower side, usury laws are there to protect the low-risk incumbent borrowers from competition. That's what I think the historical literature points us to. So I I guess I can admit the possibility that some of these things that you're talking to doctor rules might be in the public interest. But I think we're all it behooves all of us to be a little skeptical and to always ask the question, who's lobbying for these and why? Right. So so wherever there's chartered banks, there's
0: going to be some monopoly rents. And and then the question always boils down to who's. Participating in those rents, and that takes us to the the game of bank bargains, which is really dominates the book. And clearly, the bargains in the more uh, autocratic states differ from the bargains that you get in the more democratic states. I was wondering, could you just lay? Well, like, you have this taxonomy, right? And the taxonomy goes into some detail, but but in general, you know, there are these autocracies where the monopoly rents are. Kind of shared relatively narrowly between the, the the state and the elites that they need to support them. Whereas in, in the democracies, they're shared a little more broadly between the the states and the what you call more more democratic constituents. How does that play out in terms of well, thank strengthening you. They,
1: system? So the way that we like to pose that is that I'll tell you, I just gave this class yesterday to my MBA students, or two days ago, so it's very fresh in my mind. The way that we like to get there is to say to people, look, if you're trying to create a banking system, you need people to actually contribute the capital for banks. You need the banks to be willing to lend the capital. You need people to contribute the deposits for banks too. And so when you go through those participation constraints, you quickly realize that there are two solutions. You can either build institutions that constrain everyone the bankers and the government, both, against different kinds of expropriation. That's what democracies do. They constrain the bank managers against expropriation. They constrain the government itself against expropriation. And so you can build good institutions. They also constrain against debtor expropriation, that you can't just have a populist uprising that says we don't want to pay back our debts, although we have had those, and we have gone along with them sometimes in our populist democracy or in the U.S., So we're not a perfect example of a democracy that protects against expropriation. But democracies do tend to go in the direction of allowing institutions to be built based on roughly free entry and good institutions that protect against expropriation by bank managers, by government, and by debtors. Autocracies, this is the problem. The autocrat isn't able to commit, not to stab you in the back. And what I like to say, I tell friends, I say, "What? who is the friend of the autocrat? What makes you, when you're the friend of the autocrat, what does that mean? And I say, it means that you're the last person the autocrat will stab in the back. It doesn't mean you won't get stabbed in the back. And there are lots of examples of that. If you're a banker in Mexico, you get your bank taken away from you, nationalized when the government runs out of money. Remember, Calamir's first law, only law of banking. And so that happens. And then, by the way, they sell the banks back to the same groups of people in 1991. And then you wonder, how do you sell a bank back to someone that you just a few years ago stole it from? So the point is, autocrats, there are answers to those questions, but they all come down to creating scarce credit, because ultimately, the only way you can convince someone who knows They're not really protected against your expropriating them in a state of the world where you want to. The only way you can get them to voluntarily participate is to make their profit right now very high. This is, by the way, why so many people are interested for the last 20 years in FDI investments in China, not because they're ultimately protected against expropriation, but because the profit rates are extremely high. They don't need to be in China for many years for it to be worth their while. They just need to be there for three or four and they get their their money back because they're allowed to take their money out. Same thing with the Corfira Diaz government in, in Mexico, that they were able to convince people to run banks and devote their capital to it, knowing that they made a lot of profit. Those banks were quite profitable, but credit necessarily must be scarce. You have to give very tightly granted monopoly rights. The more power I have as an autocrat, to expropriate you, which I can't stop myself from doing. It just has to be self-interest. You must say, well, okay, I'm hoping that I'll go for 10 or 20 years before I get expropriated. Well, you would claim in the book that a financial institution is
0: particularly vulnerable to appropriation as opposed to, say, a manufacturer. But it would seem like the opposite is true. I mean, because a manufacturer has fixed assets that can be seized with soldiers. But the, you know, what a bank really brings to the table is know-how and
1: and knowledge and information, well, right? Well, a, that- a bank can't operate in the shadows, really. So, you know, a bank can't, if you want to collect your loans, you need to go to court. If yeah. you want to operate a payment system, it has to be part of what everyone's seeing, right? To exchange their money. So banks are inherently upfront. And so the point is, the government, you might say, well, you could. it it should be easy to, yeah, you can go in and take over a factory, I guess. That's a pretty extreme thing. But in terms of taxation authority, you go to a farmer and say, I want 10% of what you made last year. He says, oh, you know, it was a really bad year. Mm -hmm. Have you monitored everything that he's done? No, it's very hard to do. But with a bank, because the transacting has to occur in daylight, you can say, you can't be a bank unless I charter you. And you can easily enforce that because banks rely on the law. They rely on operating the open. So I think that's really our point is that there are lots of things that businesses can do where it might be hard to tax them. But in the case of the banks, they're really easy to charter, to enforce against infringements on the charter because their business is so much dependent on operating in the light of day. And, And if I could just also answer your point about autocracies. So not only is it the case that autocracies in general must have more scarce and unstable credit because of their expropriation risks, that I think is a fundamental point that I really want to emphasize. It That's 90% of the answer to why so many governments choose scarce credit, because under an autocracy, you really don't have the choice. The other thing, though, that I want to emphasize is there isn't just one kind of autocracy, but one kind of democracy. So when we go through this taxonomy, which, by the way, really had not been something we knew prior to writing the book. So one of the things I would say about in trying to proselytize about writing narratives is not just about explaining to people what you already know. It's about forcing yourself to sit down and write down all that you can figure, all that you can see and try to understand why is it that Brazil is a country with that has that had the highest history of inflation in the world? In Mexico, not. Now, I'm not saying Mexico hasn't had higher inflation than the U.S. It has. But Brazil, not Mexico, is the quintessential inflation tax country. Mexico is very different. So that led us, that that question and watching, being experts, both of us, but especially Steve on Mexico, on the history of those two countries, to juxtapose them. Why are these two autocracies also very different? So that in Mexico, you occasionally have some private credit sometimes of some significance, like during the 1890s under Porfirio Diaz. But then in Brazil, you pretty much never had a functioning private credit system. And there, that led us to a, a whole other insight, which is cell autocracies can operate centralized networks in which they can do rent sharing very effectively on a national scale. Mexico is that example. The Aztecs were doing that before the Spaniards even arrived. And it owes itself to Mexican geography, interestingly. And in Brazil, again, largely as a result of geography, that wasn't the case. And so the governments were so impecunious that they really had to use inflation tax as their main way of collecting their tax revenue, which made the banking system incapable, under my only law of banking, incapable of providing credit to the private sector, because they had to just be taxation entities that then shared their rent of tax collection with the central government. That was what the Brazilian banking system was really until the 1990s throughout Brazilian history. So then, you know, what I've also want to kind of tell people, if you're a graduate student, PhD student interested in going into something, narratives are things that you construct for yourself before anyone else that you sit down and you try to say, what is going on in this country? What are the salient facts? How could they possibly explain salient differences between countries that otherwise might seem very similar? And Mexico and Brazil are quite different in their banking history, just as the US and Canada are quite different, just as England and Scotland are quite different. And so it's those pairings that really sharpen our narrative tools are not just about telling the story you already knew. And telling it in an entertaining way. It's about educating yourself as the author first. And that's why it's a lot like data collection. It's just a different kind of data. But I didn't know a lot of things about Canada prior to writing the chapter on Canada. I didn't know much about the constitutional history of Canada before writing this book. So that's the point, is it's not just about arguing for your case, it's about discovering things through the narrative method, too. Well, in addition to
0: those different types of autocracies, and you have an interesting but much shorter story about Chile, which mm-hmm. I think could have been, I, I wish you'd fleshed it out even more, but, but with respect to democracies, you, you kind of contrast this kind of liberal democracy with more populist democracies. And I guess with respect to the U.S. and in this specific case, U.S. would fall under the populist in the populist bucket and you argue that there's certain specific aspects about how the chartering power has been uh, allocated in, in in the US that inevitably led to what we see as decades of instability why do we have these crises over and over and over again before we jump into the global financial crisis
1: in particular but you know over well i think it's important you know the question why can mean many different things, depending on how far you peel back the onion. So at a superficial level, and I don't mean unimportant when I say that, but let's say superficial level, you could say for most of US history, deciding not to allow bank branches to exist Mm -hmm. was a very damaging decision, both from the standpoint of the supply of credit on average, and also the fragility of credit. It meant that we had you know banks had a hard time competing with each other because they couldn't branch and they also were very undiversified because they were located in places where the crops were dictated by the local soil and so you know banks don't were very undiversified and were very inefficient because they could only operate one office which sounds crazy to anyone today but i asked my mba students when do you think branching was first fully allowed without limit in the united states and when they learned that the answer is 1997 that's usually a moment of some surprise. So the history of branching was very important. But of course, the deeper why is, well, Everett regulation comes from somewhere politically. And then even deeper, you can see why particular decision makers, government decision makers are making that decision. But then you ask the question, why is it that Canada Mm -hmm. decided very early in its history, in the 18-teens, to copy the charter of the Bank of the United States that Alexander Hamilton had written and to have its banking system developed on a branch basis, as it turned out, competing branch charters that were developed, sometimes as many as nationwide charters of you know tens of banks. I can't remember the maximum they ever got to, but let's say it's a number certainly greater than 30 at its maximum. So why would Canada have decided to go with branching? I, US, always, US. I always found, I always found it peculiar that we had
0: both Hamilton on the 10 and, and Jackson on the 20 when there, you know, had radically different views yeah. of the role of banking in, in, in American society.
1: Mike, if recollection serves, though. I and by the way, I'm glad they got rid of Jackson instead of Hamilton. Well, exactly. But it looks like Jackson. Well, I think Jackson had, would have paper money creation by banks prior to the national banking system. The Jacksonians pretty much were the ones who pushed for the national banking system approach. But he was against uh, private note creation, but he thought that the denomination of $20, even for private banks, might be acceptable because that meant that small denomination notes wouldn't be able to take advantage of small people that is small denomination Transactors who weren't so sophisticated. At least that was his theory. So there is some justice to having him on the twenty dollar bill. But you know, I think the deeper point I was trying to make is that it's not just that you ask the question, "What was it?" Oh, it's branching. You have to ask the question, "Well, why?" And in this case, we we go to some length to argue, and I probably can't in our time here do justice to it. That it gets back to the constitutions of the U.S. and Canada and you know i would describe the us as a federalist constitution and i would describe the canadian constitution as an anti-federalist constitution not in the us sense of the word anti-federalist but so the canadian constitution basically says all important economic powers are going to be made by the central government and and then just as we have a 10th amendment they kind of have an anti-10th amendment so our 10th amendment as you says what it says they have a clause in their constitution that says And if there's a power that we've given somehow to the provinces and the national government wants it, they can have it. So it's really interesting that those two countries evolved so differently and so much of the banking system really depended on that different decision of centralization. And I think it's coming from a very deep phenomenon, which is the U.S. was a revolutionary country and Canada was an anti-revolutionary country. If you were going to say, what country does the UK still celebrate as its most loyal subjects outside of uh, Great Britain itself, the island, the answer is Canada. That's the one that has Canada Day still. And so that's those things actually matter, as well as the geography of Canada. And because early on, the British thought, remember, they had all these hostile French people in uh, lower Canada, which is Montreal and the rest of Quebec, what we would call Quebec. Lower Canada was insurrectionist, was against the British government. They never got used to having the Brits running their country. Initially, Pitt's solution to this in the 1790s was to have Lower and Upper Canada ruled separate. But what he didn't understand was that Lower Canada would use its geography to block the building of railroads and other kinds of things that would help the development of Upper Canada to the West, Toronto and all those places. And so eventually they realized that their initial idea was put those French where they are, leave them alone, let's develop the rest of Canada. But then as they come to realize, given the horizontal orientation of Canada and the Great Lakes, that you can't develop Canada unless you centralize decision-making so that you can prevent the holdouts of lower Canada from blocking economic development, like railroads and other things. The other thing we found is just about this whole political history of Canada, which I thought was so interesting is, obviously, the Canadians know this history. but They don't talk about it much. If you go and try to read Canadian history, like what I just said about how the French were blocking the English progress, and the only way to get around it, which they figured out in the 1840s was that they better centralize economic control so that they could keep the French down. I don't hear too many Canadians <laughs> talking about that, which is really interesting uh-huh. because they're such a polite group, I guess. Yeah. But that was very much the story. Right.
0: But I think you probably don't hear in American history about how these kind of local bankers wanted to preserve their local monopolies. Right. And yeah. that's what kind
1: of but- led to the. Yeah, but it wasn't just the local bankers. You're right that they that they did, but they couldn't have done it alone. It was the borrowers who wanted yeah. to the and
0: that, and that's it. And that's the, that always puzzled me. I remember, I think yeah. back in grad school because it, you know that led to higher cost of finance, et cetera. But I think there's this yeah. argument that could be made that it really provided the bankers with more of an, almost like an equity relationship with their clients, right? And they would then have a reason to kind of work
1: out Anything exactly. in the event of financial and distress. That's, and and... that's where we come down in our story, too. That and, and you know, again, facts are powerful things. In the 1920s, Illinois had a referendum on whether to allow branching, and it was defeated. You can't tell the story that the special interests mm-hmm. were that were were driving the bus. It wasn't just the local bankers because they only had so many votes in the referendum. It had to be that borrowers from banks, wanted to keep it that way. And that's where your point about this partnership between the local banker. So I think it's very much true that if you're running an undiversified business, like corn farming, where you know that you may get hit with a bad crop or you may get hit with a bad corn price, you want bankers to be more forgiving in those years and to work it out with you. Mm -hmm. And so who's gonna be more forgiving? A bank that's operating all over the country, Or a bank that shares that same location-specific risk with you, who knows that they have to borrow they have to lend locally. And so I think that idea of tying the banker to the local economy as a kind of insurance, you call you call that equity sharing. That's, I think, a, a reasonable thing to call it too. I would call it an insurance device. They're the same. And I think that really is, it also ties in very well with speeches that certain candidates made, whether they're Abraham Lincoln or William Jennings Bryan or other agrarian populist leaders. So, you know, it what this is what our country started off as a kind of agrarian populist revolutionary country. And I don't think everybody's kind of clued into that, right? We think we're the liberal democracy. I'm not so sure. We have debt moratorium for borrowers who who get hit by uh, a big shock when they're on the agricultural revenue. I don't think Canada did have too many, if any, of those. Mm -hmm. They considered them, and a lot of those kinds of legislation, because they happen in the U.S., they would happen at a a state level. But in Canada, they would run aground, typically in the Canadian Senate, where the, the, the appointments were made by the Queen, of course, still are, the Queen of England still appoints the senators of the Canadian Senate. That's a good little fact. And now many Canadians, oh, but, you know, we tell her who to appoint, and it's all oh, this, that, and the other. Yes, that's all true, but it's still true that the Queen appoints the new senators. And as recently as the 1990s, the Queen stuffed the Senate with several people in order to push through a particular tax uh, bill that was something that the prime minister wanted to see done. So it's it's interesting to see how the constitutions really matter in these countries for very different kinds of outcomes. And you see the same kinds of groups in the two countries pushing the same ways for the same things, but coming up with different outcomes. Well, well, let's fast forward to the uh, financial
0: crisis of, of our time, right, of, of 2008, 2009. And, and I remember when, when we were colleagues back, 20, 30 or 30 years ago, I remember there were about 11,000 banks in the United States. And remember, I think, thinking, well, that's going to probably go down to, you know, 2000 will become a little bit more like Canada because of the getting rid of Glass-Steagall and getting rid of the branching restrictions and interstate banking uh, regulations. And of course, a lot of that has come to pass, but that didn't eliminate the risk of crisis. But this so this crisis that happened in 2008, it was not a result of too much fragmentation. Uh, it's, it's not, I think, as some would argue, a, a result of the deregulation. And I think, you know, a lot of people would say that it was just a liquidity event and uh, oh, no. it, was, it was just a run on the banks. But I think, you know, you have a, a story that is deeply rooted in kind of the populist history of Absolutely. American banking.
1: Could you walk through that for us? Well, you know, we talked a little bit about some related things before, which is, yes. Yeah, so now you come to a point where, and for lots of reasons that make economic sense as well as political sense, it's time to end the era of unit banking. And it becomes clear that first at the state level, and then later at the federal level, that we're going to allow branch banking. But once that becomes clear, that we're making that big shift, There are lots of good reasons politically and economically that can explain why the timing of it happened. That doesn't mean that the game of bank bargains stops. And if you're a populist democracy, you're going to play the game of bank bargains according to the same rules you did before. It's just different winners and losers, different coalition structures, different ways to tax banks as part of the winning bargain. But they're always going to be paying. They're always participating in the bargain. They're getting some things and they're paying some things. And so the way that works in the 18, the 1990s and 2000s, I already alluded to that the Community Reinvestment Act and the GSE Act, so the amendments to the Community Reinvestment Act and then the GSE Act of 1992 were used together to create fast subsidies for housing that were part of the agreements that were happening at the time the bank mergers took place, and I so I want to just quickly—it's kind of complicated—and many people.
0: It's clear. Well, it's clear that the bank mergers were going to create an enormous amount
1: of value, right, for the shareholders. Right. But what people? Yeah, So, so it's true that you know you've got the banks by the short hairs because they want to get merger approval. You know that the merger approval—that's one of the things the Community Reinvestment Act required—is that you have to show you were a good citizen in order to get merger approval. It doesn't really define exactly what those criteria would be, but it does say that you have to show it. And so what you can do is get an activist leader to come to the Federal Reserve Board hearing and say that you're a good citizen. And He knows you're a good citizen because he you gave him a lot of money. And that might strike you as something to laugh about, but it wasn't. That was exactly what they said, that these weren't hidden agreements. The two and a half trillion dollars of contractual agreements between merging banks and activist groups were and the, the quid pro quo of activist groups testifying at Fed hearings was very much out the open. But what it got to what got that number to be two and a half trillion was an insight in the early 1990s, which came out of the Senate Banking Committee. And we, we know what their thinking was because we know what the conversations were. And what they realized is, now with this merger thing happening, how do we get the size of those agreements to be even bigger? We can get those agreements to be even bigger if they require the banks to originate loans, but then they allow the banks to sell them to the GSEs. But then we have to simultaneously get the GSEs, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, to be required to buy those loans. And so that was the genius of levering up the Community Reinvestment Act, with the GSE Act. And then what's so interesting is in the early 2000s, around 2003, 2004, the people running Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae realized that they couldn't comply with those mandates because the GSE mandates were growing over time. They couldn't comply with those mandates if they didn't abandon all quality standards. So they actually eliminated all limits on the proportion of no documented mortgages that they undertook. They got rid of those limits A Get over the dead bodies of their risk managers.
0: So this takes us full circle. So it's kind of like the Bank of England redux, right? So the GSEs are essentially there to provide all of this debt financing to uh, government expenditure, except that the government expenditure is kind of off budget. It's not, they're not That's buying, true. they're not buying, you know, sh- warships to go against the
1: French. they this they're, was they're, by intention. Bill yeah. Clinton defined this as something he called the third way. He said, yeah, a lot of people don't remember this. Bill Clinton said the third way means using regulatory powers to make fiscal transfers that we can't get through Congress. Because remember, Newt Gingrich was there. But for some reason, maybe because he's a bit of a hypocrite, I don't know. Newt Gingrich, who's also gotten a lot of money from Freddie Mac over the years, before and after he was in Congress, didn't have a problem with the GSE's expansion. Remember, the GSE Act was actually passed by George Herbert Walker Bush. But then it was expanded under Clinton based on this third-way idea that we can do better physical stuff off balance sheet, as you put it. Yes, and that was quite intentional. I also want to say, why is it that, that the press doesn't report this? Why is it that other academics don't focus on this? Well, it means that off-budget works. <laughs> it's it, like, it works. Exactly, it's, it does. But there's a, another reason. So there's a very false inference that a lot of people make. And they, they hear it goes like this. If the mortgage crisis was broadly based, not just based on mortgages that were purchased by the GSEs, then how can the GSEs be and the CRA Act, Community Reinvestment Act, how can the GSE Act and the CRA be blamed? That's a reasonable question. And here's the answer. When the GSEs decided in 2003 and 2004 to remove all their underwriting restrictions over the dead bodies of their risk managers, they couldn't do it on a selective basis, even though it's clear that the reason they did it was so that they could hit their GSE Act targets. And then it it created open season for unlimited mortgage risk taking across the board. Mm -hmm. But the word cause is still appropriately attached to the GSE Act because they couldn't, for reasons I think are fairly easy to understand, they couldn't say, we're just going to remove this restriction just for low income urban housing, Mm -hmm. because then it would have been too clear that they were doing something that was essentially a risky thing that they were limiting it on the others. So instead, they tried to argue that th- what they were doing wasn't risky at all, that they could deal with all this risk and that there wasn't any reason to worry. And that's why they had to do it across the board. It's a really interesting episode. And I think we're going to repeat it. I don't think well, there, there have been some changes that are positive that we made. We didn't really go as far as we needed to get rid of this problem. And we had all this good intentions. But notice that the Dodd-Frank Act talked about a lot of things qualitatively, but not quantitatively, mm-hmm. and left those quantitative things. For example, how many mortgages today are made with down payments less than 3%? A lot and a growing number. Even though that was part of the Dodd-Frank Act, that we weren't going to make risky mortgages anymore, the rest of the world still looks at us and, one, and shakes its head. Like, how come we're making, I haven't checked the recent number, but I'm going to guess it's more than a third of our mortgages have down payments of less than 3%. To the rest of the world, that's looney tunes. Well, but someone would
0: argue that, well, this didn't really ultimately cost anything at the end of the day. The, the government stood in as lender of last resort, made a profit on their loans.
1: So well, ex ante, ex post, but ex ante, which is when, it all that you so our government accounting procedures now correctly require us to measure subsidies at the times they're given, not just to look and see, well, did it all turn out okay? Did we get some good luck? You know, good. So, no, it, it costs a lot of money in the ex ante terms that our own accounting rules now require us to to measure correctly. In. But I think you would also have to say we had a vast amount of forgetting the fiscal cost of the GSE bailout, which I would put it. Certainly, a hundred ex ante, one hundred fifty billion or so, I would say, at the time we did it, and then the bailouts of the banks—they have a pretty good price tag too. But as a percentage of GDP, if you're a big country like the U.S., it's small. But then you say, okay, how about the crisis itself and what it did to the economy, and what it did to the financial system, and to our whole society? I think it was a very disruptive event. So if there hadn't been that we were subsidizing, encouraging, and requiring subprime lending. I don't think we would have seen so much of it. What we needed was a government that was saying, you know, we need to regulate prudentially. So, you know, now this has become globally what everybody says, which is you need to have limits on leverage, limits on how much banks can lever, as well as how much mortgages can be levered. And you need to vary those when the market gets too hot, as they do in Canada, for example. When the market gets too hot, they raise the down payment percentage requirements. But in the US, this has never been feasible. And that's an interesting question. Here's another interesting question that shows why economics can't answer everything. If we agree that having down payments that are effectively zero isn't a very good way to create a stable housing market, a stable housing credit market, then how come... And we admitted as much in the Dodd-Frank Act. And we said in the Dodd-Frank Act, we were going to create debt service to income ratio limits. Well, then how come we did two things? First of all, we we left it up to the Fed to decide what the debt service to income ratio limit would be. They were lobbied very hard, and they set a limit that was extremely high. So not very binding. And secondly, we included what Barney Frank has admitted. What he's described, this is his own quote, the loophole that ate the standard. What loophole did they create? All GSE held mortgages would be deemed to be safe without any reference to any of these prudential limits. That's why the GSEs ended up with doubling up the whole mortgage market. And that's why it had no effect in, in limiting the down payment on mortgages in the US because they put this loophole in that said, we want down payments and debt service to income ratios to be limited, except on GSE loans. Well, then that destroyed the private mortgage market. So that's how you destroy the private mortgage market. You set a rule that doesn't apply to the GSEs. So between the federal, the FHA and the GSEs, they're the almost the entirety of the mortgage market still. Why? Because they're exempted from the prudential rules that which themselves were very weak that were established in the mortgage market. So our democracy decides every day on things like this. We decide that we want to have a fragile mortgage banking system. We've decided notwithstanding 2008 that we still want to have one. And I think if you ask a lot of citizens, you know what I tell people, I said, do you want to know why we have such an unstable economy? Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. You're the reason. You vote for these people and you do it on purpose because they've got you bamboozled. If if you think you're getting something from having that low down payment, you're not because what low down payments do is they create housing bubbles, housing prices that are much higher than they otherwise would be. So even though you think you're getting a great deal, you're actually paying a lot more for your house. If we limited leverage in housing, we would actually bring housing prices down to a more sustainable level for other people, for people who are, who are coming in as new buyers, in other words. But that's not the way it works, right? I mean, you can see how hard it would be to try to make that politically viable message.
0: But then why don't why wouldn't we see this in Canada? I mean, if the source of instability has moved from this kind of fragmented system but now this is this populism is taking place at the center, then why wouldn't the, the Canadians, uh, you know, be subject to this similar populist well, they've, pressure?
1: They've experienced some of it. They've experienced some of it. And I would say my own reading is that Canada is moving in a more populist direction relative to its history. Mm-hmm. But it's still starting from a, a real, true, classical liberal starting point. Canadian Senate is still appointed, I think, for life. That's a pretty interesting difference. You know, that was initially, of course, our senators were were, under our constitution were supposed to be appointed. That changed about 100 years later. I don't think most Americans are even aware that our system as it began conceived of the Senate as a check on populist ambitions, partly because the Senate wasn't elected.
0: Well, you know, out of this financial crisis, one of the byproducts was the creation of Bitcoin, right, <laughs> which happened in 2008. And, you know, we're seeing the emergence of all sorts of fintech innovations, particularly in emerging markets. We're seeing how kind of fintechs are stepping into the the breach and filling some of the gaps that we see in these underbanked societies. But but we also see see the emergence of decentralized finance and people who think that the banks can be more or less replaced and yeah. there there are people that i think a lot of them are inspired by this libertarian notion that they can do away with these institutions and uh, government regulation and you know, it's funny that, that I started teaching a course on on cryptocurrencies uh, a couple of years back and and all of a sudden everybody was interested in the free banking system, which I think they kind of misunderstood. <laughs> they didn't realize yeah. it, <laughs> what it really was. They thought it was sort of, you know, private issuance of money in an unconstrained way. But you've written quite a bit about cryptocurrencies and how they might play some role within the regulated financial system whether it's through central bank digital currencies or wh- whether it's through some other form of of stable coin issued by financial institutions or even non-financial institutions could you talk a bit about kind of do you do you see the the story of banking do you see more continuity or discontinuity with the emergence of these
1: new technologies well that's a really interesting way to ask the question so let me try to address that so I think I guess both. I don't I, I wouldn't say it's discontinuity with in some respects continuity in others. But let me also say discontinuity is itself if continuity is constant. then we have to say it's continuity, right? So, for example, the national banks in under the National Banking Act were created in vision in, with it, uh, the vision in mind that they would create a uniform currency, meaning paper banknotes called national banknotes. And very soon the architects realized that what they had really done was they, they had succeeded in that mission. But what they had really done was change the medium of exchange to be deposits, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. One, right. In but, no other country do you see checks still,
0: like compared right, to the right. US.
1: Well, and but in the 1860s, checks seemed like they, you know, oh, those are kind of, you know, checking accounts might work as a medium of exchange. Yeah, could be. But then when the National Banking Act came along, what it said was, implicitly what the regulations say is, if you want banks to lend, it must be funded by deposits. And believe it or not, it has to be funded a little more than 100% by deposits, which is like, that's what the rules of the national banking system say. They don't come out and say it that way. But you look at it and you say, wait a minute, I can do the math here. If I want to lend, I have to do it all through deposits. Because every national bank note on the liability side has to be backed by 111% government bonds. So that means you can't use national bank notes to fund lending. So that was what was interesting was even though the National Banking Act is billed as, tried to create a uniform currency of national bank notes, what it really did was completely transform the medium of exchange to be something else, because that was the only way that banking could still make loans. Isn't that funny? So that was a discontinuity, even though they were envisioning the continuity of going from state bank notes to national bank notes. But that's not what they did. What they did was they created through the regulatory costs of national bank notes, they created the incentive for a new medium of exchange.
0: And and there were proposals And I think there are proposals at one point to create these kind of pure uh, banks where all of your uh, deposits were going to be uh, backed by something
1: other than loans, which would have, you know, just crazy. I mean, so what some people, this was sometimes called the Chicago plan. What they had in mind was lending should be done by somebody who's not in the transactions business. Now, by the way, that's part of the current discontinuity. So I I, want to try to get some. Sorry, I'll try to get to it quickly. You ask such a loaded question, Greg, that you know it's hard to answer it quickly. So part of what we're seeing right now is that the regulation of banks is helping to spur fintech firms that are going to use a different model than the traditional model. Not relying on deposits is a great idea because deposits require you to be regulated. Mm-hmm. Another thing that is interesting is the new information technologies are leading to unbundling. So if you look at the fintech providers, they're either doing lending or payments. They're generally not doing the two together. That's a completely new model. And I would say they don't have to do payments through deposits. Now they're trying to pressure them to. They're trying to be, you know, the people who want to constrain fintech. My own view is we should be chartering in a very flexible way, the banks of the future, and we should be allowing a wide variety of business models. And now, well, you know, well there's this right, thing.
0: I mean, I know a number of my students have fintech startups, and and they just sort of, uh, you know, there's like charter as a service, right? So you can just sort of, you know, borrow whatever services require a charter. You just kind of access them through an API or something, and and you don't need to, you know, get a charter, right?
1: Well, but a charter can have some advantages. One of them is licensing fees and sort of cum- cumbersome applications. So instead of, if you got a national bank charter, you're operating everywhere under one charter. That's very helpful. Secondly, you're getting examined by a very credible examiner, the OCC. That's that's its whole value proposition is it's credible. So, you know, we were talking, not online, I think, but before the, this interview about tethering, where are its reserves? Well, you can, in the future, what fintech providers want is they want someone to be able to, I would say, audit their algorithms to make sure their algorithms do what they say they're going to do, to also be auditing where their reserves are and in what amount. That's what the national banking system started with, you know, auditing the reserves and making sure they were where you said they were. That's what examiners did, as well as auditing the loan balance sheet to make sure it was worth what you said it was worth. In fact, I'd say from the first 100 years, that was pretty much what the national bank examination was about, was just making sure that the things in your financial statement were real and were where you said they were. So fintech providers could get a lot of advantages from a unified national charter and from that auto function, including stable coin crypto providers who want the government to look at their algorithms. And the government gets a big advantage of this too, because That way we can enforce rules that say you have to avoid money laundering and you can't facilitate tax evasion either because algorithms can be constructed in ways that are conducive to uh, avoiding money laundering and avoiding tax evasion. And so the charter is a natural outcome of a political bargain. I see being very beneficial for our society, for our government, and for our crypto stable currency providers. But there's always a problem. And the problem is that populist side of the US. Right now, the incumbent banks don't want fintech to exist. The Federal Reserve doesn't want fintech to exist because they they worry that it's a threat to their centralized payment system. And those activists who I mentioned before, who've been milking the banking system since the, the 1970s, they don't have any way currently to milk the fintech firms. And so, Even if those were chartered, if they don't have deposits, it doesn't kick in the CRA. It doesn't kick in the Fed's oversight and our overhauling companies. It doesn't kick in the FDIC. And so a lot of vested interests out there, the Fed, the FDIC, the incumbent banks, the activist groups, have joined in an alliance, an unholy alliance, I would say, to try to cut off fintech at the needs. And fintech providers need to keep pushing for access to federal charters. But they also need to design their business models so that the next wave of regulation that's about to hit them is already being factored in. So one of the things I've talked about is you have to design stable coins in a way that they can't be construed as deposits. Because I think the next step of the regulatory evolution, for reasons I've already explained, is going to be to try to construe stable coins as deposits so that they kick in all those regulations. So I've been trying to convince stablecoin providers, please call me if you're a stablecoin provider and you want further explanation. Not to create stable coins based on redeemability. That is, you don't stand ready to convert back into dollars. Don't give that option. And not to make them debt instruments, to make them something more like preferred stock. And that would pretty much make it impossible for stable coins to be construed as deposits but I'll just leave it there. I think these are the kinds of things in today's world as an entrepreneur in fintech, you have to be able to think ahead. Where is the regulation going? And and to get that, you have to know who's making the political bargain. The winning coalition right now is the Democratic Party, the incumbent banks and the Federal Reserve Board, not the Federal Reserve Banks of Philadelphia, Chicago, St. Louis, but the board. And they've been allied in a way that I would say is, is more partisan than I've ever seen. I've never seen the photos are so partisan for the incumbent banks. That sends you a message. Notice that when you're writing your own internal narrative. Notice that it's never been like this. Those three parties are joined at the head, and they have one common enemy. It's called fintech. Vanya, uh, th- most of
0: these fintech startups were begun by engineers, and the engineers did not really have a background in finance and certainly not a background in, in law or in, in politics. And and they very quickly discover that, you know, good engineering solutions are insufficient uh, in order to wow. build a, a business, particularly in what is the most regulated industry in the world. Very so if we all move towards some kind of digital currency as our medium of exchange, will this cause the loans to dry up or will
1: we need a uh, new incentive? No, I think it's just unbundling. That you're yeah. right, that, that these stablecoins providers, I think you're right, that they're not going to be lenders, because yeah. I don't think the economics no longer that we, we have a lot of economics that I've written and others have written that have suggested there used to be synergies. I don't think those synergies are very important anymore. What we're going to see is specialization on the payments and the lending side, where the lending side is going to be funded by the market yeah. through securitizations of various types. I think that's a more stable system. It's a more efficient system. It's a more innovative system. It's a more inclusive system, both on the payment side and on the lending side. I just want to emphasize stable, efficient, inclusive. The problem, of course, is what is that coalition that hates fintech saying? Fintech's risky, 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 risky. They're going to say it a 100 times. Maybe they'll even start believing it at some point. But no, it's not true. The future of fintech is the future of something that's stable, efficient, and more inclusive than what we've been doing. But that future is dependent on an informed public. I was in Texas recently, in Austin, Texas, and they had a quote of Sam, it was Sam Houston, but I'm not sure. Maybe it was Austin, it might not have been Houston, whoever it was said, you know, your democracy is only as good as your citizen's. And I have to say, I think we're at an important turning point right now. We have a lot of citizens who don't seem to invest a lot of time and effort in thinking about where our democracy needs to go, what the threats to it are, what kinds of due process we need to preserve, how things like the efficiency and inclusiveness of fintech needs to be taken into account, not just the populist politics of preserving the status quo, and this is not stuff that makes for great sloganeering, right? I, it would be hard for me in a seven-minute soundbite on TV to explain what's taken us, you know, an hour plus on your podcast here. That's what's worrying, because the attention span of this current generation seems to be very limited. I'm not optimistic. And I'll just say one other thing. A lot of people I talk to in fintech, they seem to, not the professionals, but people who are consumers, seem to think that the government can't stop them. Well, that's just wrong. All this computer that I'm talking to you from could be outlawed by the government. It has to exist in a physical place. It relies on government infrastructure. We can't operate. Look at China. The Chinese government has no trouble restricting things because everything has a physical location. And the government has a lot of power. So no, we we can't have a fintech future unless we win it first politically. That's what worries me.
0: And I was going to ask you about end with a question about China because you know we've seen uh, Alibaba, in particular, and financial right get kind of smacked down. And I remember you speaking a lot to Chinese audiences. I used to speak a lot to Chinese banks, and I would say that you know the financial institution in which I had the most faith was. Ant Financial, because I thought that their loans were, uh, their lending criteria was built on data and not on political directives. But we've seen how easily the Chinese government was able to remind them that the financial institutions exist for their, for political reasons. It's part of, it's an extension of the state. And I think they've always had, they always have been an extension of the state to somewhat. I think, and that's the main message of your your book.
1: You can't get the politicians never sleep. They have huge power. Instead of thinking, uh oh, let's devise something that can get around the existence of the state, what you should be really thinking is, how do we become part of a winning political bargain that provides stability, efficiency, growth, inclusion? And what that means, of course, is how do we become part of a liberal political bargain in the classical sense? And the bad news is they're few and far between.
0: Charlie, thanks so much for chatting. Uh, we could probably talk uh, a whole lot longer. But, but I, but I like think everybody... we've said all that needs
1: to be said. <laughs> oh, except hold that book up one more time.
0: Check out this book, uh, Fragile by Design. I mean, it's, I think it's uh, now it's like, I don't know, nine years old or so, but it's really quite good and I think timeless and... You know, all you'd have to do is just add an an additional chapter if you wanted to, you know, bring it up to the present. So uh, thanks so much for joining me. Hope we'll chat again soon. Let me know when you're out here sometime. Will do. Okay. Talk soon. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the unsiloed podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review to listen to other episodes